Some of you I know, my name is Kevin O'Brien, I serve as one of the elders at the Sugar Grove campus, and I have been here before, though it's been a while. I will say I'm not as loud as Travis, um, so you've got that. Um, I can't guarantee that I'm shorter than Travis, so sorry. Um, You know, when Pastor Keith texted me on Monday to ask me to preach the Sunday, I jumped at it and at the opportunity and to talk about prayer and what does it mean to take prayer seriously. And I had this plan, started to formulate fairly early to use humor to talk about how we don't take prayer seriously. And then over the course of the week, our country, it seems, decided to do its best to try to implode around us. And humor didn't seem quite so appropriate anymore. We watched and saw two black men die at the hands of police in incidents that at the very least look terrible. And in the back of my mind's mind, I hear the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. quoting Amos, let justice roll. On Wednesday and Thursday, I began to search out words from Christian leaders. What do we do about this? How do we deal with this? How does the church lead when we're dealing with all of this fragmentation, a culture that seems bent on destroying itself? And then came Thursday night. Seven wounded, five dead, and it seems that the disintegration is only getting worse. And there were more ambushes on Friday, and according to the news when I looked this morning, 200 arrests last night around the country. So how do I preach on prayer, God, when this is happening all around us? You know, I've seen glimmers of hope. I saw this amazing video on the Gospel Coalition website. Three men, two black, two white, one white, all Southerners, talking about how the church has to lead, how the church needs to bring reconciliation. Glimmers of hope. People dealing with one another compassionately and, dare I say, Christianly. And then, on Friday night, I made the mistake of spending three hours watching news channels, flipping back and forth to see what was going on. And I remembered why I never watch news channels. Because it's much less about information than it is about causing more friction and more problems, more division than hope. And the more I thought about this over the week, frankly, the angrier and the more frustrated I became. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that if we want our nation to heal, if we want hope, then we, the church, must lead. We cannot sit on the sidelines It has to start with us, and it has to start with prayer. I was watching Twitter, and I saw this tweet by Beth Moore. 
She said, God help us, church, if we have more to say on all our social media platforms than we have to say in prayer. We need divine intervention. And that's where we're at this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have called us your children, that you have called us your body. I pray that this morning we would hear from you, that we would see as we start this new series on prayer just how seriously we need to take it, and that you would allow us to be leaders in change and healing in our nation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We need to take prayer seriously always. But we need to recognize that serious prayer is a challenge. In times like this past week, we struggle. We struggle to know how to pray, what to pray. We have questions. We have a lack of answers. Although sometimes I think serious prayer may be harder when things seem to be going well. Because when things go badly, we recognize how out of control we are. When things go well, or at least we think they're going well, we think we're in charge. And we fall into this trap of thinking everything's okay and our prayers become rote and maybe they become a meme on Facebook or Instagram. And we humble brag about how spiritual we are and at the same time we can still look cool. I see at least three challenges to serious prayer. And I see them in the passage we just read. You see, it doesn't really matter if it's tragedy or triumph. Things can pull us away from God, from seriously engaging with God in prayer. So think about the situation in the text we just heard read today. This is Passion Week. This is the Passover. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem swells. It at least doubles in size during the Passover. Literally tens of thousands of people from outside of Jerusalem converge. They are pilgrims to celebrate this annual festival, one of three that they're supposed to come to every year. It's part of their religious duty, and they have to make sacrifices during this time. And not everybody could make the trip. Most people wouldn't have the money, or it was too far. There were as many Jews living out throughout the Roman Empire as within. And so people who couldn't go would give their temple tax to the people who did, and so the temple would get the, that money. You see, money doesn't work in the same way it does today. There's no ATM cards, there's no debit cards, there's no credit cards to swipe. No universal currency. People came from everywhere in the empire, and in the time of Jesus, there was only one kind of currency that the temple would accept for the temple tax. They were shekels from the town of Tyre, which is up the coast. Why did they do this? Because the Tyrians were international traders. Their currency was stable. It was known to be just. It wasn't going to be faked. And the Jews weren't allowed to mint their own money. So the money changers existed because they had to. In order for people to pay their temple tax, they needed to exchange their money. And by the way, if you're walking, taking a boat, doing whatever to get to Jerusalem to 
participate in Passover, chances are you are not taking your doves or your lamb or your cow with you on that journey. You have to get it when you get to Jerusalem. You have to sacrifice. That's part of the deal. So all of those things happened. Think about how many people it takes to make a service work here on any given morning. There's quite a few, maybe 20, maybe 30. For the temple to run, historians tell us it took 18,000 people a year, 700 per week, priests and Levites. And then you think about the fact that the temple is so big, it dominates all of Jerusalem. And all of those priests and all of those Levites have to be fed, they have to be housed, they have to have clothing, there's all the stuff going on in and around the temple. Okay? Oh, and by the way, this is all happening around A.D. 30. Herod's temple started to be built in B.C. 20. And it took 80 years. That means at the time that Jesus is here, there's about 30 more years before it's complete. So you add in all the stonemasons and all of the artisans, and the contractors, and no wonder people are frustrated when Jesus says, that temple's coming down in three days. They're going, wait a minute. It's been 50 years, and it ain't done yet. What do you mean it's coming down in three days? What does all that have to do with prayer? Jesus says the temple is to be a house of prayer. But all of this activity is happening on the Temple Mount. And the way that the Temple Mount works was the temple's in the middle, and then there's a next court, and there's a next court, and all of this is going on in this huge outer court portico called the Court of the Gentiles. That's what we call it. That's not what they called it. The Gentiles couldn't go any further than that. Okay? All of this stuff is going on there. It's functioning as a full-blown bank and a stockyard, and there's thousands of people, and there's construction, and the sounds had to be amazing, and then you think about the smell. And I ask you, could you pray with all that going on? I mean, I can't concentrate on a conversation on the TV when my kids are in the background yelling at each other. I couldn't concentrate on prayer. And then you add on top of that, each of these people that are coming to sacrifice to God, they're coming to be part of Passover, are just like us. They have cares and issues. They are dealing with hurts and pains and illness. And oh, by the way, the Roman government is oppressing them. It's no wonder that There were distractions. Circumstances can be distracting. This week, this morning, I don't know if you're at all like my family, but often getting to church on a Sunday morning is difficult. Coordinating people, making sure that everybody's fed and clean and dressed and not fighting and all of that stuff. And then we lay on top of it all of the craziness of this past week, the horrors of it, and we're supposed to concentrate on prayer. You see, circumstances can make prayer a challenge. 
But while circumstances are a substantial part of our problems with taking prayer seriously, there is a second challenge that is even greater. And that's us. You see, self is a problem. When Jesus confronts the money changers in the temple, what is he confronting exactly? Sure, there's commercialism going on here, which is not great. They're turning sacrifices into a commodity, and I would argue that that is a sin. However, the root goes even deeper, because what the people were doing was essentially making worship all about themselves. God, I have to do this thing to make you happy with me, so here's the transaction. You see, when Jesus teaches about prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he doesn't start with the Lord's Prayer like we think. He starts with the reasons it's needed. This is what he says in Matthew 6, verses 1 to 8. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What are acts of righteousness for? They're for communion with God. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And he goes immediately on to this and connects. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Same thing they were doing when they were giving to the needy. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And then, this is how you should pray. It seems that we are fundamentally selfish. We make prayer into a thing about us and use it for our own ends instead of recognizing that it is fundamentally about communing with God. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, in which that teaching on prayer of Jesus is situated, is fundamentally about us being citizens of the kingdom of God first and foremost. It is about living in every area of our lives from a kingdom perspective, in our relationships with others, in our inner lives, and most foundationally, in our relationship with God. You see, kingdom citizens have one very definitive thing about them. They get out of the center of their own lives and let God dwell there. Here's the tricky part. God will let us continue to sit in that seat if we demand it. But when we do, we can't truly live as we're intended to live. We can't truly function as citizens of the kingdom. We can't pray as we are intended to pray. When self is at the center of our lives, when God is not, 
we don't seek God seriously. We don't pray seriously because we don't want to be taken off the throne. And when we remain in the center of our own lives, we can't see the other through God's eyes. We can't feel what he feels. We can't help but be selfish. And we wonder why our nation faces the things that we face. You see, taking prayer seriously means, first, we have to get ourselves off the throne. So if circumstances in self are a challenge, the third one may surprise you. God himself is a challenge to our prayers. Now that sounds borderline blasphemous. But I think we need to tell ourselves the truth about what we face when we pray to God. You see, God is not like us. He is what theologians call completely other. See, we are creatures, creatures and he is the creator. We are finite and he is infinite. We are fallen and he is holy. The difference is, that list is huge. And he is different than us. He is God and we are not. This is not a relationship of equals. And it gets even more complicated because we can't see him, we can't hear him, we can't touch him. See, the temple, when Jesus goes to the temple, it's the center of Jewish worship. It's the center of Jewish religious, cultural, and political identity. This is where God dwells with his people. It is to be a reminder that God is there in the middle of us. By the time of Jesus, there hadn't been a prophet for 400 years. Sometimes Bible teachers talk about the 400 silent years. I'm fairly convinced that God is never silent, but that's the way we talk about it. And sometimes I think that we look at things as if at the end of the New Testament, God decided to shut up and we've had a 2,000-year silent period ourselves. Now, we never say it out loud, certainly not among other believers, but how often do we think, God, are you really there? Are you listening? Do you care? Do you see what's going on? I mean, come on. Why are we doing this? Have you say, Jesus, that God knows, but have you seen this week? So, I think we need to be honest with ourselves as we approach prayer seriously. Who God is, his otherness and his invisibility, that seeming silence, all of that coupled with our very selves and our circumstances make serious prayer hard. And anyone who says it's not hard is not paying attention or hasn't tried. But it doesn't mean we get to stop. Jesus reminds us in this passage today in Matthew 21, and in fact throughout his life, that prayer is central to our faith. You see, we struggle with with prayer to pray. And those are often based, I think, because we're not quite sure where it fits. How does this work exactly? We treat it sort of as something tacked on. You know, we pray before meals, 
teach our kids to pray before bed. And it's kind of cute when little kids do it because if they've been around church long enough, they sort of get the lingo, but it's not quite right and it gets humorous. We put a very high importance on the idea of the sinner's prayer. We almost treat it as a magic formula. Oh, we know that it's Jesus who saves, not the prayer, but sometimes we act as if we think it's the prayer. Did I say it just right? I maybe did it wrong. We pray in church, but, you know, it's Village Bible Church, right? Bible is central. After all, Jesus read the Bible. He taught the Bible. His words are the Bible. It's through the Bible that we come to know God. We learn who he is, what he's done, who we are and what we're supposed to be. It's in and through the Bible we learn how to live with God and one another, to love God and love one another, and all of that is true. Absolutely true. And Jesus says in Matthew 21, 13, my house will be called a house of prayer. Why would he say that? Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 56. And I'm going to quote, I'm going to read something from that. I'm going to back up a few verses because I think this is really important. For this is what the Lord says, Isaiah 56, 4. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. I find these verses amazing. They remind us that prayer is at the heart of worshiping God. It's right next to the sacrifices. And the people in Jesus' day, much like the people of today, have seemingly reduced worship to the sacrifices. Get it right. Get saved. But even then, they're being shady about it. Jesus says that they've turned the temple into a den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. What that means, bottom line, they're cheating people. They're using the worship of God to make money. But prayer is more than tacked on to worship. It goes with the sacrifice. It's not a chore. It's supposed to bring joy, verse 7 said. Prayer isn't the only thing in worship, but it is one of those central parts. How central is prayer? I did some research. By one estimate, there are over 650 prayers recorded in Scripture. 
The first one happens in Genesis 4. And now I want you to think about this. Adam and Eve don't show up till Genesis 2, and they're talking directly to God in Genesis 3. So Genesis 4 is as early as you can get. Oh, and the last prayer is the very last verse in the last chapter in Revelation. Prayer is central. Jesus taught on prayer. But he taught, did more than just tell us that that temple was to be a house of prayer. He modeled the centrality of prayer. That same article says that scriptures record at least 25 prayers of Jesus. And we know from Luke chapter 5 verse 16 that Jesus' habit was to often withdraw to lonely places to pray. So think about that the next time that you question whether you should pray. Jesus, who is God, second person of the Trinity, made it a habit to pray. Jesus prayed in all sorts of circumstances. He prayed at the beginning of his ministry. He prayed for his followers, for Jerusalem. He prayed for those who weren't his followers. He prayed before raising Lazarus. He prayed for hours on the night that he was betrayed and then would have to suffer an illegal trial and death on a cross for us. Jesus' life shows that prayer matters. And in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, he teaches us not only that prayer matters, but how to pray. And those prayers give us a glimpse of God's heart. You see, prayer reveals God's heart. What do I mean by this? In Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus' teaching on prayer begins with, this, with two words, our Father. This is more than a name. This is an indicator of who God is and who he wants to be in relation to us. He is to be our Father. This is who he is. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, says this about prayer. Prayer brings those who have the spirit of supplication into a wonderful communion and fellowship with God. Therefore, God has ordained prayer as a means for us to grow in personal relationship with him. So here's the hard part. If prayer reveals God's heart, when you think about prayer, when you think about who God loves, who do you think about? Is our default assumption that they are people like us? They look like us, they believe like us, they think like us, their culture is like us. Look around this room. We are not all the same and we're not supposed to be. We are the body of Christ. The Isaiah passage that Jesus quotes specifically references two sets of people who are other like capital O, other. Eunuchs are people who can't have kids. And in the ancient world, if you can't have kids, you are cursed by God. There are other thoughts about who those eunuchs might be. But the second group was foreigners. People outside of the covenant. People not like me. You see... God says that the temple is to be a house of prayer for everyone. 
And here, Isaiah is very purposely echoing another prayer. The prayer of Solomon as he dedicates the temple in in 1 Kings 8. And I'm not going to read it all now, but it's very instructive about what prayer is for and what the temple is for. You see, in 1 Kings 8.29, Solomon prays that the temple would be the place where God's name dwells. And then for the next 23 verses, the prayer talks about how the temple functions in relation to prayer. And more than anything else, we see that this temple, the center of Jewish religious life, reflects God's heart for people, for the nations. In verses, in 1 Kings 8, 41 and following, 41 to 43, he specifically pulls out the idea of the foreigner who is not God's, hearing about what God has done and coming and being blessed and saying, God, do whatever that foreigner asks. Show yourself to them. You see, God cares about people who are very different than we are. And if we take our faith seriously, if we take our prayers seriously, we better recognize that fact. We had better be willing to get beyond people who are like us. Paul reminds us in Galatians 3 verses 26 to 28 what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. This is the way it reads in the NLT. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And Paul is not alone in saying this. John in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 to 10 tells us that there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's heart is for our world, all of it, and our prayers are not and cannot be serious if we are only willing to pray with people like us. Prayer also reveals our faith. See, if God's heart is for the world, if Jesus is God come for us, then we are supposed to be like him. And then we have to have a faith that reflects those things. If my faith is genuine, if it truly reflects Christ, then my prayers had better reflect the things that God cares about. Prayer ought to be central in my life just as it was to Jesus. And I had better be sure that I am not allowing division to rule in my heart. Paul's statement in Galatians 3 that I just read goes to the heart of our faith. Here's the truth of the matter. We are all of us, every last one of us, fallen, broken, and depraved sinners. We are all guilty before God and yet loved by him anyway. That's who he is. God's holiness 
is manifest in his very love in Christ who gives himself up for us all. What is our faith? What are our prayers if we forsake that? In this past week, our country has shown its fault lines. We have seen the power of hate and prejudice. We have seen the realities of total depravity among ourselves. And I'm not saying that we are as bad as we could be, but that there is nothing in any of us that is not stained by our sin. But ours is a faith that says we know this to be true and at the same time that God loves us anyway. We can't fix it on our own, but we know someone who can. And God in his love and in his mercy shows us that he wants us, that he reconciles us to himself and to one another. He calls us his body. This this week, this message has been a struggle for me. And I believe perhaps more than at any other time in my life that as a church, the church throughout the world, specifically in this country, we need to get on our knees before this holy, loving God and beg for forgiveness and compassion and mercy because we, the church of Jesus Christ, have failed one another. We have failed God himself because we have allowed division and apathy and resentment to live in our hearts. We have treated prayer as if it were attacked on thing instead of being central. We have not lived up to the faith we claim or the God who reaches for us all. And that's got to change. So what does serious prayer look like? What is its character? I have to get moving. If our prayers are going to be serious... They have to start in the right place. They have to be God-centered. You see, the problem with the money changers in the temple was that they had turned the sacrificial system on its head and made it about them, not about God. Look at all of these prayers that we've read today. Look at the Psalms. They all recognize the central place of God first. The temple was where God dwelt with his people. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in John 4 and they're arguing about the temple, he says there's a change coming. Soon, God's going to be worshipped in spirit and in truth and the temple won't be necessary. Why? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst. We're to live our lives centered on God who has made us his temple. And if our prayers are centered on anything other than God, we're missing a crucial piece. Bunyan also says that prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to the word of God, for the good of the church, with submission in faith to the will of God. God is central. That leads us to the second characteristic of serious prayer. It's reverent. Look, I am as snarky 
and sarcastic as anyone you have met. Ask my kids. My mother showed up this morning. Ask her. She will tell you. I am certainly not saying there is no place for humor or satire. There is, but that's not what we're talking about here. We need to remember who it is that we are communing with. We need to remember that when we pray, we're communing with God, the God of the universe, the creator and redeemer, the one who Paul says in Acts 17, in whom we live and move and have our being. You see, church buildings, temples existed and exist for a reason. We can pray in any situation, in any space, but we need to remember that there are reasons for buildings like these. There are reasons for falling on our knees. There is a reason that Jesus tells us to go into a quiet place, into the closet, or he goes out on his own to a mountain to pray because we need to be still. We need to know that he is God. We have to be reverent. Third, Serious prayer is real world. Centering our prayers on God doesn't mean that they have to sound spiritual. It doesn't mean they have to sound like church. A lot of fluffy kind of things. We began and we begin with praising God when we pray. We give him his due. Prayer is not about getting stuff from God or getting God to do stuff for us. However, read the Psalms. They're basically prayers. David prayer, David's prayers are not sickeningly sweet, fake, church-sounding prayers. Read them. They are lament. This week, lament is needed. Raw, unashamed, crying out before God. Not correcting, not saying that doesn't, that's not right. Hear what David says. A lot of David's psalms are calling down fire from God on his enemies as much as they are praising. Prayer isn't tame. David pulls no punches. He argues with God. He questions him. What is going on? Why do the heathen rage? Why do evil men prosper? Why do I suffer? God can take real world prayers. Psalm 55:22 tells us to cast our burdens on God. He will sustain us. Do we believe it? This is not the same as asking him to give us stuff, but Paul tells us in Philippians 4:6 to present our request to God. You see, the issue is not the stuff. The issue is the attitude. One recognizes that God is for us. The other wants to use God to get what we want. Real world prayers, though, go beyond what I need, what my burdens are. Real world prayers lift up others. Paul tells us over and over again to lift up one another. 1 Timothy 2, pray for those in authority, church or civil government. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 to pray for our enemies. James says, pray for healing. You see, sometimes we hear, oh, we just need to preach the gospel. We need to leave all of this justice stuff to the side. It's not necessary. I am telling you here and now, those are gospel issues. You see, the gospel is not about getting into heaven when you die. 
The gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel is God incarnate who comes for us, who lives and dies and rises again to reconcile us to himself. The gospel is, as Dallas Willard used to say, about getting into heaven before you die. The gospel, if it's good news, then it's got to be about a here and now. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. If Jesus Christ is life, if it is a full life, then he calls us to love God and love others, and that means here, now, prayers in the real world. Last characteristic, prayer is constant. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 to pray without ceasing. It's an attitude of communion and conversation with God that is to be as natural as breathing. The difference is we don't have to think about breathing. Our bodies just do it. Prayer requires practice. Any athlete will tell you that the reason why you do why you practice is to create muscle memory so that when you get into a game you don't think you react. It's the same thing with driving. When you start to drive, you're not good at it. And you have to learn how. And you have to create muscle memory. A habit. Jesus went often alone to pray. He had a habit of prayer. And we need to create that own habit. Finally, consequences of serious prayer. Sounds like a weird word. What do you mean consequences? Don't you mean promises? It's more than I needed another C word to round out the outline, okay? Consequences are serious things. Consequences convey the idea that you can't take this lightly. Here's the thing about serious prayer. If you want to be king or queen of your own world, do not pray seriously because you won't stay there. If you are comfortable with your life as it is, do not pray seriously. There are consequences. First, prayer connects us with God. That's what we were made for, after all, right? Genesis 1.26, we're made in the image of God, made for communion with God. John tells us in John chapter 1 and chapter 3, and come to think about it, this entire book is all about connection, communion with God. That's the point. But here's the thing. Connection to God, as I said before, means we have to get out of the middle. We have to relinquish his place. Think about the fall in Genesis chapter 3. The temptation was not the piece of fruit. And Bruce Springsteen and Natalie Cole notwithstanding, it was not a pink Cadillac either. The temptation was to be God in our own lives. It's not a small temptation. But when we get out of the seat, everything changes. You see, serious prayer connects us to the God of the universe. You think about that. We get to come directly into the very presence of God and cry with Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Second, prayer changes me. That connection will change you. We're made in the image of God, made to be with him, and prayer makes us a bit more of who we were meant to be. Richard Foster says that to pray is to change. 
Prayer is, cent- is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are willing to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable character. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to his image. Third, prayer changes others. Serious prayers seek the good of others, physically, spiritually, holistically. Jim Cimbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, he relates the story of his daughter, Chrissy, 18, far from God. It was destroying him and his wife. And things were getting worse the more he pressed, and a pastor friend told him, you have to let her go. You have to let her be. Sometime later, a Tuesday night prayer meeting. Jim has not said much to his congregation about his daughter and the situation. He gets a note from a a young woman who he says is spiritually sensitive. And she says, we need to stop the prayer service and we need to pray for your daughter. And it turned into an all-out prayer blitz. 32 hours later, he's shaving in the morning getting ready, and his wife comes into his house and says, Chrissy is here. You need to come downstairs. She wants to talk to you. And she was broken before God, confessing sin, and she asked him, what happened? Who was, tra- who was praying for me? What happened on Tuesday night during that prayer service? You see, God changes more than just our prodigals. Though he will certainly do that. God changes even our enemies. Paul hated Christians and became the person who would spread Christianity farther than anyone in the ancient world. Jesus' disciples included a tax collector who worked for the Romans and a zealot who was part of a religious and political party that wanted the violent overthrow of Rome. Finally, serious prayer changes the world. We've had a bad week as a nation. We've been tempted to give up, and we can't. If God can change you and me, if God can change those around us, there's hope for the world. As I close, I'm going to read a passage on the power of prayer from Chuck Charles Spurgeon. But before I do, this prayer service this afternoon matters. If we are the church of God, we have to take a stand. We can't sit idly by and just spout platitudes. So, today at 4 p.m., we're praying together. Black churches and white churches and Hispanic churches and coming together as the body of Christ to pray for our country and to lead because nobody else can do that. We have to stop talking and stop complaining and instead seek God seriously. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about the power of prayer. As many mercies are transported from heaven in the ship of prayer, so there are many special mercies that can only be brought to us by fleets of united prayer. 
Many are the good things God will give to his holy Elijah's and Daniel's, but if two of you agree as touching anything you ask, there is no limit to God's bountiful answers. Matthew 18, 19. Peter may have never been brought out of prison if, he had, if it had not been that prayer, that prayer was made without ceasing by all the church for him. Pentecost might never have come and had not all the disciples been with one accord in one place, waiting for the descent of the tongues of fire. God is pleased to answer individual prayers, but at times he seems to say, you may entreat my favor, but I will not see your face unless your brethren are with you. Why is this? I take it that our gracious Lord is setting forth his own esteem for the communion of saints. I believe in the communion of saints is one article of the great Christian creed, but how few saints understand it. And yet there is such a thing as real union among God's people. We cannot afford to lose the help and love of our brethren. Augustine says, the poor are made for the rich, the rich are made for the poor. I do not doubt, but the strong saints are made for the weak saints, and the weak saints bring special benedictions upon mature believers. There is a completeness in the whole body of Christ. Each joint owes something to every other joint, and the whole body is bound together by which every joint supplies. The value placed upon union and communion among the people of God is seen by the fact that there are certain mercies that are bestowed only when the saints pray unitedly. How, ought to, how we ought to feel the bond of this union. How we ought to pray for one another. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly asking for your mercy and your grace. We are a people, we are a nation who needs it. I pray that you would give us a heart for you, a heart for others, a heart for serious prayer. I pray that you would help us to see just what it is you would have us to do. Help us to lead on our knees in prayer before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.